0: We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2 tonight, and we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. The last couple times I've had the opportunity to be up here, we've looked at Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, where Paul reminds the church in Ephesus and teaches them about their salvation, where you have come from, what God has done for you, and he wraps it all up in verse 10, talking about, well, this the goal of this was so that you are his workmanship now, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared so that you would walk in them. But the passage, obviously, does not end there. Chapter 2 continues, and that's what I want to get into tonight. Because verses 11 through 22, don't worry, we're not going to take the whole chunk tonight. We're just going to look at the first couple of verses. Verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2 the focus of the chapter shifts. Hey, really, from what God has done personally for his people to what he has done corporately, or for them as an entire body. And really what we see is this is where Paul was headed the whole time. He didn't put in verses one through ten just to say, Okay, full stop, aren't you happy? Let's go. There was a reason, there was a direction that he was heading, and we start to see this in verses eleven through twenty two. See, the work of Christ for his people as a unified whole now becomes the major theme that permeates this entire section. As Joe was preaching this morning, talking about what it means to value your church membership, one of the points that he brought up was he said a good church member, somebody who values their church membership, is marked by peace. First of all, peace with God And secondly, peace with others in the body of Christ. And when I say that he really teed me up this evening, it's that second point there that he made that we have the opportunity to start to delve into a little bit deeper tonight. Peace with others. See, God has always been concerned about the unity of his people in the church. It's written all over the New Testament when he talks about the church. The words of Jesus in John chapter 17 as he prays to the Father, where he prays for his people, he says that they may be one even as we are one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, for example, or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, where it says that you may be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit Just as you were called to the one hope. And this is just a handful of passages, but all over the New Testament. Believers in the church are called to unity, are called to peace with one another. In the world of the New Testament, this was a particularly important topic to them because segregation between different groups was very common in the early Roman Empire. You had the distinction between slaves and free men. Segregation between men and women, segregation between the Greeks and the barbarians, between Roman citizens and non-citizens, and the distinction between Jew and Gentile. And it's really this acrimonious relationship between Jews and Gentiles that is of particular importance here in this passage. See, as as many of us well know, the Jew was prone to look down upon the pagan Gentile, and the Gentile was prone to bitterness towards the Jew for his perceived attitude of superiority. This wasn't just an issue in the outside world in the first century Roman Empire, but it was an issue even within the church. You had people coming from all walks of life, Jew and Gentile, together for the first time in this unique relationship And they're figuring out how do I navigate this? How do I set aside my own personal prejudices that I have held for so long my entire life and now I'm being called to something new and something different? See, Jewish Christians had often been hesitant to admit Gentiles to the church in the first century except through the door of their Judaism. That's all over the New Testament as well. It's the whole reason that the book of Galatians was written, right, because of the teaching of the Judaizers. We look at Acts chapter 15, the necessity of the Jerusalem council because of the teaching of those who said Gentiles cannot be saved unless they become Jewish, unless they become like me. The influence of this on the early church became so prevalent that we had, like we said, a special council convened of the church in Acts chapter 15. It was not uncommon in the early church for Jewish and Gentile believers to stumble over each other. What was of extreme importance to one group was completely inconsequential to the other, and vice versa. And so as we come to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, I actually want to jump to the end of this passage to look at Paul's goal. This is where he has been headed the entire time since the beginning of chapter 2. Look with me at verse 19 of chapter 2. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom, or in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so what we see here in these verses, the goal of this passage and where we're going to head here, it's ultimately to build unity within the body of Christ by building it within the local church congregation. A lot of times when we consider unity in the body, we tend to think of what we call the universal church, the body of all believers of all time. And that is the Bible does call us to unity with that, but the local church here as the tangible and visible demonstration of the universal church is really what we're concerned about. That's where unity is most felt and where unity is lived out. And what I would like to do tonight is as Paul writes here in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 22, what he does is he gives us building blocks for unity within the local church and I'd like first tonight to look at the first one and then as I have opportunity later there's two more that we'd like to look at and so Paul looks to build unity by first reminding the Gentile believers in the church to remember their hopeless plight as it was before they trusted in Christ he wants them to recognize deeply The situation from which God had rescued them. And so as we come to the first two verses, which we'll read right now, notice that he emphasizes the direness again of their situation before they trusted in Christ. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 11. He said, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What Paul does in these first two verses here of this passage is he emphasizes the separation that existed of the Gentile believers, as were predominant in the church in Ephesus, from their Jewish brethren to show them the complete and utter hopelessness of their situation before they came to Christ. In his commentary on Ephesians, John MacArthur puts it like this. He said this important section begins with the word therefore, indicating that the next line of thought regarding the new identity of those Gentile Christians is built on what Christ has done to give them life and eternal blessing as described in verses 1 through 10. It is as if Paul is calling them to be so grateful for their deliverance from their old situation, that they come to fully appreciate their new situation of union with all other believers. Most of us, as we sit here tonight, are not Jewish. We fall into the Gentile camp. Everything that Paul says of the Ephesian believers in this passage is also true of us. And as we ought as well to prize unity within our local church body, Here at Lakeside Community Chapel, Paul's therefore remember in chapter 2, verse 11 is a good place to start. And so what we're going to look at tonight and as I get opportunity in the future is three building blocks of unity that he gives us within the local church. And the first one, as we already mentioned, is to achieve unity first, remember your past. Remember how you were alienated From God and his people. And we'll go back and look at verse 11 again. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. First of all, Paul looks and he reminds them of the perception before they came to Christ. This therefore, remember, those first couple of words are very important. They point us back to chapter 2, verse 10, where he says, You Ephesians, though dead, you were made alive by grace through faith for the purpose of good works. Therefore, since God has done this, now remember, consider your former condition in the light of your present state. Remember who you were, as we talked about a couple messages ago, and now look at who you are in your present state. And he goes back in verse 11 and he highlights a couple of things. First of all, he reminds them or he tells them they were Gentiles in the flesh. Now, what does he mean by that? We know if we read on in the verse and we look at the context surrounding it, he's talking to those who did not bear in their bodies the physical mark of circumcision, the mark of the covenant that God made with his people Israel in the Old Testament. You see, it was not uncommon for the Jewish person of the time to look down on Gentiles, even Gentile believers, because they did not have this physical characteristic. It's why they were called the uncircumcision. This was a mark of animosity between the Jew and the Gentile. Paul is not using this term. He's not referring to the Ephesian believers saying, you were called the uncircumcision, because he put any stock at all in the mark of circumcision. That would completely contradict what Paul has said prior. For example, in Romans chapter 2, verse 29, where he said true circumcision is a matter of the heart. Its primary importance is what is going on inside rather than bearing the physical mark. No, Paul is not saying I put any stock in this. He's simply stating facts. He's saying there are those, remember, who look down on you because you don't bear the physical mark of God's covenant with his people, Israel. Well, what's his point? He's reminding them that they were spiritually destitute, absolutely, in every sense. As the church in Ephesus, they, before Christ, had even lacked outward signs of spirituality In our vernacular today, we might look at them and say, you weren't even decent church-going people. You were completely pagan. You never darkened the door of the church, in other words. And as we sit here tonight, as believers, we need to remember that we were just like the Ephesians in this. This was our plight as well. Again, Paul is not saying that the fact that they were looked down on and despised was right. He's just reminding them of the reality of what was their situation. He was emphasizing that these Gentile believers had absolutely no claim on God's grace, either outwardly, by just doing outwardly religious things, or inwardly. You were absolutely spiritually destitute And you were not even bearing any signs of trying to be spiritual. And even the secular world recognized it. This is who you were. So that was the perception. That was what they were dealing with. That is how they were looked at before. He comes then in verse 12, and he moves from the perception then to their real true spiritual plight. Read with me verse 12. He says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a lot of negativity all crammed into one verse, right? There's a string of statements there, and it seems like each one gets worse than the first. But again, he says, remember this. Remember who you were. He says, first of all, you were separated from Christ. Now, in this context here, as we understand it, his focus here is a reference to Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. You were despised. You were part of Israel, God's covenant people. You did not even have a claim to the Messiah, This is the same idea that he promotes or that he goes back to in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. We'll read that really quickly. Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. Where Paul says, talking about Israel, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Focus here is on Jesus as Jewish Messiah. The idea that he came first to the Jews and was perceived by the Jews. Even Jesus himself stated this. For example, John chapter 4, salvation is from the Jews. The point being that Messiah came first and foremost as the Messiah to the Jews. And not being Jews, the Ephesians were, by nature, cut off already from this advantage. They were separated from Christ. They were also, you see in verse 12, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The point here being they were excluded from the many blessings that were given to the Jews, God's chosen people. And the Old Testament is full of this. Passages where God is speaking to his people, saying, I chose you Specially, specifically, to be my people, to bring about blessings to other nations, to prosper you. I rescued you, I set you aside, and we have a special relationship. This, in fact, is what Jesus alluded to, as we just mentioned, in John chapter 4, verse 22, where he's speaking to the woman at the well. And reminds her that salvation is from the Jews. God had chosen to be known in Israel as he had made himself known nowhere else. So they were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He goes on to say, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. This is a reference to the covenant of God with Israel in the Old Testament that was repeatedly reaffirmed and expanded. Began with Abraham, the Mosaic covenant. Expanded then with his promises to David and so on and so forth. These covenants throughout the Old Testament were an indication of God's special relationship with Israel that the other nations did not have a claim to. And Paul reminds them in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12. He says, you are outside of this. You were strangers to these. God had a special relationship with Israel that you were not a part of. You were cut off, effectively. And the same really could be said of unbelievers today. I like the way that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on Ephesians 2, like the way that he wrote, where he says, they, talking about the unbelieving world, he says they can read their Bible and it doesn't move them. They can look at these exceeding great and precious promises and say, to whom does this apply? What is this all about? They're strangers. They're like people from another country. They do not understand the language. And that's where we too were at before Christ, right? We could take this, strangers to the covenant of promise, and that was us. That was the Ephesian believers, We had no claim either inwardly or outwardly to the promises of God that were contained in the scripture. So they were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. And then the final statement that he makes is kind of a summary statement. He says, having no hope and without God in the world. This is kind of an all encompassing statement of their plight. They formerly lacked the hope of salvation or any hope of God's favor. They were looked down on and despised by the religious establishment of the day. They lacked even outward signs of spirituality. They had no claim on the Messiah whatsoever. They were not a part in any way of God's people. And they weren't familiar in any way, nor could they completely understand God's revelation of himself in his word. Nor did they have any desire to understand. And again, going back as we sit here as New Testament believers, the same could be said of us to varying degrees, right? We lacked outward spirituality. We had no desire to know the Lord. We were cut off from his people. We had no claim to the promises. We had no desire nor ability to understand his will as it's revealed in Scripture. And so everything that Paul says to the Ephesian believers is true of us here as well. But that is where we have to start with this understanding, going back to our big point here. If we are going to achieve unity in the local church as the goal that Paul states at the end of chapter 2, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, this is where it has to start. We have to remember our past. Remember what God has brought us from. So what does it all mean? How do we bring this full circle? How is this a building block for the unity of the church? For unity, for living at peace with one another, at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. As we said before, we ought to prize unity within our local body. The New Testament writers stress this repeatedly. You cannot read any New Testament gospel or New Testament epistle without coming across this idea that believers are one in Christ. Paul even hints at this earlier in chapter 2. When he talks about, in verse 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. And you notice there's a word right after that. Made us alive together in Christ. Notice he doesn't just say he made you alive in Christ. No, he made you alive together as a whole. You're not in this as an individual yes God did act on your behalf for individuals but the point is not just you and you alone the point is the people of God and the people of God are manifested physically right here in this church as you look to your left and to your right to those sitting around you as you interact with them on a daily weekly basis Those are the ones for whom Christ died and made you alive together with them. We say we ought to prize unity because it is this unity as one of the things that Jesus died to achieve. We say that we prize it. We say that it's important. But here's the thing. You are not allowed to say that you prize unity Or that your church as a whole is unified if you as an individual are not actively pursuing it. You can't say that. I fear that we might have a tendency to sit on Sunday mornings and think when we think about unity, well, my church is unified. We're all going in the right direction. I mean, look at us all. We're all singing together. We're listening to the word taught together. We all talk after the service, we all shake hands when we're ordered to, all that good stuff, okay? We definitely prize unity and yet harbor grudges in our hearts. Well, unity is built on an individual basis. You can't say unity is important or I go to a church that is unified and not be at peace in your heart with another believer, The way that we pursue unity in the body is to pursue it in our own lives. And Paul recognizes this. And so that's why, here in Ephesians chapter 2, he gives us building blocks for cultivating an inward heart attitude that leads to unity with other believers. And so, as we said, the first building block that he gives us here is to humbly remember our past. And where God has brought us from, excluded from God's people, lacking any indicators of true religion, even though many of us, before we came to Christ, may have thought of ourselves as Christians, or at least good people, we knew nothing of Jesus. If we would say that we believe in Jesus, it was only a Jesus that we had fabricated in our own minds. We had no fellowship or common ground with the church or with God's people. No capacity for truly understanding his word. And so when we look at this, the point of verses 11 and 12 is not to make us feel sad or depressed. No. We should be a people marked by humility when we remember what God has done for us as individuals. And this humility should encourage a unity with other believers. You see, the first two words of verse 11, Therefore remember... Those two words completely level the playing field and demolish anything that could divide us from our brothers and sisters in Christ. As I was going back through my notes for this week in preparation for tonight, I remembered a a quote from the Puritan pastor John Bradford that I'm sure many of you have heard. As the story goes, he was with a group of friends. They were walking out on the street and at that moment, as they're walking on the street, another crowd goes by the opposite direction, and it's a condemned man being led to his execution on the gallows. And as the story goes, John Bradford points at the man, turns to his friends, and says, There, but for the grace of God, goes John Bradford. Okay? That ought to be the attitude that characterizes us as we live with one another within the local church body you see if we really remember and understand the miracle of God's salvation to us we would desire to share his grace with others to see them blessed by his grace as well therefore remember we're all equal and as you look around you at these other believers at these other workmanships as we saw In chapter 2, verse 10, therefore remember what you used to be as well. And if we truly believe that we have experienced God's grace in salvation, as outlined in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, we will delight, we will look for opportunities to show that same grace to those people who are here with us tonight, together, as we gather to worship. One of the primary ways we show this gospel grace to others within the church is by bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven us. As it says in Colossians chapter 3 verse 13. The key phrase there is as the Lord has forgiven you. See, what happens when we don't have peace with other believers? What happens when, inevitably, because as Joe pointed out again this morning, this church, as great as it is, is not perfect. And by the way, Joe said this is the smallest church he's ever been a part of. This is by far the biggest church I've ever been a part of. Like Lakeside is ginormous, as far as I'm concerned. Sometimes I don't know quite what to do with it. Hey, there's a lot of people here and a lot of opportunity to offend each other, right? And as I stand here tonight, I have offended people in this church. Actually, I'm looking out on the crowd tonight and I can, there's faces that I know that I have offended you. And there's faces that I've offended you and I don't know about it. There's people in our church who have offended and hurt me. Been here for almost 20 years now, which again is nothing compared to some of you, but that's a different subject. It's inevitable. You are going to hurt and you are going to be hurt. That's because we live in a sinful world and we're not yet perfect. But what happens when we have been offended? Hey, sometimes we forget to remember what God has brought us from, right? And we feel like that offense against us is completely insurmountable when we forget our offenses against God. Remember the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 19, verses 21 through 35. We're not going to take the time to go and read that entire passage tonight, but I'll point you back to it. But remember the point of the parable? There was the servant who owed his master an unpayable sum and was forgiven. And what did he do? He went out and found one of his other fellow servants who owed him a relatively, in comparison to the debt that he had been forgiven, a relatively minor sum. And what did he do? Say, well, I've been forgiven much. I should forgive you. No. Says he put his hands on him, began to choke him and said, pay what you owe me. And when his master who had forgiven him much heard about it, He rightfully reprimanded that wicked servant. He said, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? How many times does the Holy Spirit need to say that to us? Should you not have mercy on each other since I have had so much mercy on you? Have you forgotten? Therefore, remember. Remember remember who you were if we say that we truly understand the depths from which God has forgiven and saved us is there any offense to us that anyone could perpetrate that is too great to forgive is there any reason for anyone at Lakeside Community Chapel to hold a grudge against another believer the answer here is clearly no No, there is not. Now, that doesn't mean that we never confront other believers when they have hurt us. It doesn't mean that there's never a time when we go to them and say, you have done this. We need to sit and we need to talk and we need to sort this out. But it must be resolved. Again, like Joe said this morning, there is never an excuse to not reconcile if we therefore remember. It's not just that we should do this either in a begrudging fashion. Well, I guess I've been forgiven, you know. (sighs) Might as well. Guess I have to. No. Is that how God forgives us? Not at all. We serve a God who delights to forgive. Who the instant one of his children turns to him and says, I am sorry, please forgive me, even before the words can come out of our mouth, he is extending forgiveness. Enjoy Our God delights to forgive sin, and so should we. We ought to prize the opportunity to share God's grace with those inside and outside of the faith instead of looking down on them or demeaning them. Now, this doesn't go just for those inside the church. We should delight in forgiving our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But again, too, this extends, while this is not the main point of Paul's passage, it is an application, this extends to our opportunities to share the gospel with unbelievers. I know that I, like many of you, tend to look around at what's going on in our society, in our world at large, and we tend to get frustrated, right? And we tend, and we might be prone, and maybe I'm the only one, to think sometimes some kind of ugly things about those who we perceive to be on the other side, right? We hear the noise and we just instinctively recoil at some of the things that we have been told and the things that we are hearing. It's our instinct to look at those people who are saying those things as our enemy and to look down on them and to demean them. Is that how our God looks at them? Is that the grace that he has shown us? No, we ought to pray for them. We ought to love them. It doesn't mean that we have to endorse or support the things that they are saying. It doesn't mean that we should speak out against those things. But we ought to speak out against the things that they are saying, the ideology, and not the people themselves. Because those people will exist somewhere for eternity, either in heaven or in hell. And the gospel is extended to them and we ought to delight if we have experienced the grace of God to share it with them. And we ought to pray and we ought to be burdened for their salvation. And so with that, I've been speaking primarily to believers tonight. And so I, I plead with you as, a, as believers in Christ, as members who I know that after Joe's message this morning our membership at lakeside community chapel more than we did at this point yesterday right as we sit here tonight and we think about one of the aspects of that membership is unity unity within the body first of all to get there remember your past remember what god has saved you from and let that foster a humility within you that will not allow you to live at odds with other believers but to those who, are, who might be here tonight, or who are hearing this message, we've been talking about verses 11 and 12 as our past, as we are believers in Christ. Understand that if you have never trusted Christ for salvation, for forgiveness of sins, this is not your past. This is your present. This is your reality. This is your condition, and it is a condition that if you should die in it, ends with an eternity separated from God in the place that the Bible calls hell as judgment for your sins. You see, if you have not trusted Christ, ultimately you are without hope because you are without God in the world, in the words of verse 12. But this does not have to be your reality because you too can know the mercy of God and be made alive in Christ If you will humbly admit your own sinfulness, your need for the Savior, and trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection for forgiveness of your sins. And if you have not done that and you're here tonight, I would love nothing more. There are those in our church who would love nothing more than to talk to you and to share with you more how that you too can know the mercy of God and the forgiveness of sins that he makes available in his son Jesus Christ. So to believers and unbelievers, therefore, remember. Remember who you were. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we have had tonight to gather together and to study your word. I pray, Father, for humble hearts that would receive it. Father, I pray uh, that for the believers here tonight, Lord, that you would help us, Father, as a church, to be unified, to live at peace with one another. Father, I pray that you would start that in each one of our hearts, Father, that you would show us if there's any way tonight as we sit here that we are harboring grudges, that we are harboring anger or bitterness towards anyone who is a part of this church. I pray, Father, that you would help us, give us repentance and hearts to get it right, if that is the case. Father, I pray for anyone who is here tonight or who will hear this message who doesn't know Christ. I pray, Father, that you would open their eyes to their absolutely desperate spiritual condition, that you would convict them of their sins, you would help them to understand the gospel, and that they would turn to him in repentance and faith for the forgiveness of their sins. I thank you, Father, for allowing us to be here tonight to worship. I pray that you'd give us all good weeks, that you'd keep us safe. Father, that you would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, that you would strengthen and encourage our faith, and that you would bring us all back next week. We trust these things to you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.